inner circle of listeners of BungaCast. This is the BungaCast Reading Club 2023, and we're on to Section 3. We've now blasted through Sections 1 and 2 in the first parts of the year, um, and now we're turning to Section 3, which we'll deal with, um, as Phil will explain briefly, um, or in, in short order, uh, Adam Smith in Beijing, Lineages of the 21st Century by Giovanni Arrighi. Um, just quickly, um, I hope you found uh, useful the stuff we've done up till now. We've kind of done pretty different themes. So uh, unlike last year, we this year we decided to just do three bigger books, um, or at least three denser books. Uh, you'll have noted that it's section two on legitimation crisis by Jürgen Habermas is slim, but dense. Um, I personally, though, have found it super useful because even if questions relating to, for example, working time and taking control of your time and how um, the politics of time are actually really central. An issue which uh, Martin Hagland br- brings up in his book, uh, This Life, which we discussed at the start of the year. Um, at the time, I found it you know, obviously super interesting, but now I'm finding it like I'm co- constantly returning to it and drawing on it for something that I'm writing. Um, and hopefully you, listener, um, whether you're writing something or not, or you're just thinking about politics or encountering um, these issues in your political struggles or whatever else you might be doing, um, that you might end up drawing um back on, on things that uh, we discussed in the reading club. Uh, certainly I have. So I, I found it super useful. Also questions of legitimation, which have emerged over the course of the year politically following current affairs. Suddenly I'm like, oh, actually, but that's really useful because now I have that Habermas under my belt and I can actually deploy that in a, in a useful way. So um, anyway, I found it useful. I hope you are as well. Um, tell your friends they'd like to follow along. Um, we're doing this episode and then three more um, as part of this year. Technically, we'll probably finish at the in the beginning of next year, um, but um, finishing up on this big theme of globalization and the rise of China with also a bunch of stuff about Adam Smith and Karl Marx and some other guys thrown in as well. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing now, and I'll hand over to Phil. Thank you, Alex. And yeah, indeed, welcome to... Um the final part of um, the reading club for the year. And I just wanted, before we kind of get stuck into some of the topics I wanted to talk about, I wanted to begin just by talking a bit about the um, the rationale for choosing this particular book. Because, um, I mean, obviously there are many kind of particular books um, that we could have talked about. Um, and perhaps it's fortuitous in some sense, given the way global politics is going at the moment, but more on that. Um, shortly. So the reasons, I mean, the reasons to choose this. So Arigi published this book in 2007. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, pre, that's prior to the um, the global financial crash of 2008. It's just, it's not, I mean, at this point already, China's kind of um, understood to be the emerging engine of the global economy. And that would have been, that was, you know, vindicated in the aftermath of the global financial crash um, in 2008. So the rationale for going back to the book was to, or going to this book, was to give us the opportunity from the vantage point of the early 2020s to retrospectively evaluate a, a book that was prospective, that was looking forward. 
And I mean, it's not a book kind of that is um, all about predictions, but rather about looking at the model for um, the world historic change that is occurs with China's expansion and China's return to or China's economic and industrial growth over this period. So as it turns out, perhaps, you know, it was more... Um, the choice of this book was kind of fortuitous to some degree, given the fact that this, perhaps the overarching theme of this year, um, seems to be the kind of the uh, the demise of unipolarity, I suppose, to, um, to put it as bluntly or succinctly as possible. So at the time that we're recording, I mean, not only is the kind of Ukraine war is kind of still grinding on, but also the eruption of the conflict um, in Gaza between Israel and Hamas, um, and the fact that America is divert diverting um, resources that were destined for the Ukrainian war machine are being re-diverted to support Israel in its forthcoming ground assault on, on the Gaza Strip. And everyone is thinking about the, um, you know, how far the kind of the decaying rim of the American empire is going to be able, how far the Americans can continue to kind of prop it up, or if they're going to be overstretched by having to support Ukraine in its, you know, as part of a NATO proxy war against Russia, but also now having to support one of their closest allies in the Middle East against um, what is in all likelihood to be a um, horribly bloody, drawn out um, and generally kind of grinding and miserable um, experience of uh, the attack of the forthcoming um, ground invasion of Gaza. So I guess the question hanging in the background of, um, of some observers' minds, and this includes um, uh, a recent guest we had on, Alex Gorovich, he tweeted about this, but, and, you know, there are other people who are thinking about it or who've mentioned it or, you know, kind of, of uh, it's been circling around, is whether or not... Um, the Chinese Communist Party will take the advantage of the situation in order to try and seize Taiwan and to reunify um, the kind of entirety of um, China. Um, Taiwan being, um, you know, kind of seen as a breakaway, a breakaway province by Beijing. Um, on the other hand, Taiwan's still calling itself the Republic of China and therefore still nominally, formally claiming the territory of the entire Chinese mainland as well. So, the point being, um, looking, thinking through Arigi's model of China's rise and the implications of that model and what alternatives to the model might be and the strengths and weaknesses of that model, what he devised back in the early, at the start of the, 20th, of the 21st century, is it seems it's an excellent moment to reassess, um, to see you know, how far yeah. his, uh, his model holds up. Yeah. So... Um, that's the rationale for kind of choosing the book. I wanted to um, just briefly explain the title of the book because I think it's um, it helps to set up and to frame the discussion. So Adam Smith, I mean, obviously kind of he's, um, you know, kind of the name alone, he's associated as the founding father of modern political economy, of the founding father of modern economics. Um, he's understood to be one of the premier, if not perhaps still the perhaps the premier analyst of capitalism. And so to speak of Adam Smith in Beijing is to talk of, uh, you know, to provide an account of the meaning of capitalist development per se. 
as it turns out, and as you know, as readers um, will know, Adam. It's also China figures in Adam Smith's own theory in important ways, and Arigi talks about this in the opening three chapters that we're going to discuss. So. Arigi talks about how China kind of figured as a particular vision, or I should say um, imperial China. Obviously, this is China before the century of humiliation in the 19th century. This is the China of the late 18th century that Adam Smith is talking about as a particular vision of a kind of stagnant, mature economy. Um, And so it's Adam Smith in Beijing is also thinking about um, how imperial China, kind of this um, mature economy of the pre-industrial, pre-capitalist world kind of breaks down and is restructured through that process. And then finally... um, It's also a riff on um, uh, Karl Marx in Detroit by Mario Tronti as well. So you might have actually been coming to say that. So I was, I was going to mention it. No, not at all. But I mean, I was going to mention it, but yeah. So it's also a riff on a book, which was very influential for, um, for Arigi in thinking about the development of post-war Marxism and how much, according by his own account, um, post-war Marxism kind of, at least until, um, the seventies, it had drifted far away from, from its roots in, um, understanding the development of classical political economy, of industrialization, of capitalism. And so I think this, in a way, is Arigi um, settling accounts. I mean, perhaps it's too much to say settling accounts with the left or with himself, but it's certainly kind of um, a rejoinder, I think, to the way in which he frames or presents the book. is partly a correction or a rejoinder to the way in which Marxism had drifted. And then, but in this way, combining the two, kind of synthesizing the two streams. So the third world kind of Marxism of the post-war period that was formative for people like Origi, for the new left, was focused on the um, the anti-colonial revolt and the upheaval in the third world. Um, and the classical Marxism of the 19th and early 20th century was the Marxism, the critique of capitalist development. And so he's fusing them together. Um, and like George says, Mario Tronti's uh, Marx in Detroit was an influential read for Arigi in drawing attention to, um, I suppose, the limits of third world, of the third world Marxism that emerged in the Cold War. And so it's a uh, rejoined it to that as well. And then finally, it's also, importantly, it's not just a kind of acute um, acute title that is evocative in all these ways, but also he makes a very important and serious point about Adam Smith's um, prospective vision of, I suppose, what we might call a multipolar world. I mean, I think it's slightly anachronistic to frame Adam Smith's view in those terms, and I'll come back Mm. to why shortly, Um, but a world in which the disparity of of wealth and power and technological sophistication, that that disparity has been eliminated, and that is what Adam Smith looked forward to, was the elimination of that disparity. Even a non-polar world, maybe. Yeah, in fact, I think there might be a much better way. That would be probably closer to Adam Smith's vision, if I've understood it correctly, um, and you know, through the filters of Arigi as well, and you know, from my um, uh, from my own understanding of Smith. Um, so, anyway, there. I think all of those points are important to lay down as markers in terms of the title. It is a good title because it does, you know, it kind of ties into themes from the book in a substantive way, but also is evocative in um, in ways that I think um, clarify Arigi's intent and meaning. And to that extent, you know, those are all, um, those are all valuable things. So this question, the core question of the development of economic growth and how 
this is something we'll be returning to over the course of talking about it as well as I mean on the regular sessions of the pod but how does economic growth and economic power translate into political power um what is the mean what is the kind of what is the outlook for a world which is more um equal in the distribution of resources and political power that comes with it these are some of the basic themes i think of the book that um are in the book but also that go beyond the book because the book um you know it's kind of a a treatment of those themes that obviously are larger than uh, the book itself so those are some opening opening thoughts um is there anything any of you guys wanted to add no i just think that was a nice um i mean if i hadn't read it already I would have wanted to read it from that introduction. I think, you know, these are these are important, interesting questions. I guess um, I just wanted to add in a bit of context on Arigi himself. Um, and this is all taken from um, this book, The Left Hemisphere Mapping Critical Theory Today by Razmik Kachayan. Um, and yeah, so I think it's, it is a useful book, The, the Less Left Hemisphere, um, where he tries to provide a bit of a map of all of the left-wing thinkers today. And that was in... 2010 so 15 almost years ago and there are two parts one is ab- around subjects so you have thinkers like Ranciere and Badieu and Zizek and then the uh, the part that Arigi's in is on system so thinking about um, capitalism as a system or more there are a few different subsections one of which is um, on Hart and Negri another is on the revival of theories of imperialism um, and then the one in which Arigi is placed by Kajayan is on capitalism's old and new. So I think this is potentially useful because it's like, okay, right. So you, if left-wing thinking is today about subjects or systems, Arigi is definitely a systems guy. And within that, he's thinking about capitalism. You know, there are different ways to think about capitalism. One is cognitive capitalism. And then the other thinkers in that section are Brenner, um, Boltansky, uh, Altvata and of course Arigi himself. So to get on to the the man uh, Arigi specifically, the summary here is mainly on his classic work, the Long Twentieth Century. So uh, Kachayan says, well, what's Arigi's kind of theoretical perspective or starting point? He's a world systems theorist, so drawing on thinkers like Wallerstein and I, th- I think it's Wallerstein actually, and Brodel. Um, so talking about the long durée, so this kind of like long term, not ne- necessarily Marxist, but Marx adjacent um, theoretical framework. And then probably what Arigi is most famous for is this kind of history which of capitalism, which looks at these systemic cycles of accumulation. So he basically says it's not um, each one of these cycles of of accumulation has a specific geographical center not not necessarily a state but in the 15th to the early 17th century it was genoa it was the low countries from the late 16th century to the late 18th century it was great britain from the mid 18th to the mid 20th century and then most relevantly for what we're going to discuss in this part the the reading club and definitely today it was the us from the late 19th century to the present and each one of these um kind of centers has its own various different sorts of logic and and one of these really important ones is territorial logic. So this basic idea the, of the, the kind of the core and the periphery, how these um, cycles of capitalist accumulation also map onto um, geography as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of more interesting kind of detail of, uh, of Arigi in, in this book, which I would also recommend. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the way Kachan summarizes it is, well, 
this book, Adam Smith in Beijing, is in some ways Origi's theoretical testament because it takes this history of those kind of movements um, in systematic or systemic cycles of accumulation and says, well, what's going to come next? So this is the kind of, hopefully that's somewhat useful for, for listeners. This is the um, the framework that Origi's developed in previous books. And yeah, it's much more ex- exploratory and prospective Adam Smith in Beijing because he's looking to what comes next. It's not um, just a history. It's also trying to draw, draw some of those trends out and see what they're going to emerge into. So yeah, that's all taken from, as I said, The Left, left Hemisphere by Razmik Kachem. So that's putting Origi in, in his, uh, and there are lots of other thinkers in there who we've done um, on other reading club episodes, um, Habermas and Agamben, amongst others. So yeah, back to you, Phil, after that uh, short snippet of uh, context on Origi. No, thanks, George. Um, it's uh, good to have that um, that background. So um the way we've chosen to break up the book for the purposes of the reading club is um, in this session, we're discussing part one, which takes us from the introduction to include all of part one, Adam Smith in the new Asian age. Um, and uh, there's a few points, I suppose, I wanted to extract just by um, uh, not perhaps because uh, I think that they're necessarily usefully discussed now. Um, but only because I think they're good to bear in mind and perhaps also um, to invite. In fact, uh, I'd be curious to hear what listeners make of them. But the first part, um, the first part of the book, there's a lot of setup. I mean, it's obviously, it's a tremendously ambitious book dealing with the world, you know, the world historic phenomenon of Chinese industrialization. And therefore, um, there's the first part of the book is essentially devoted to sketching out um some of the models that are going to be used for discuss some of the economic models um, and some of the major debates about the origins of capitalist development, how far it was possible for capitalism to emerge in China, how far China was capitalist before the breakdown of imperial China, discussions about um, European takeoff, to use uh, to use uh, a term that Origi doesn't use, but kind of why uh, why why Europe industrializes compared to the rest of the world when it does, what are the factors behind that, population growth, uh, market expansion, market integration, uh, the relative uh, uh, kind of uh, role that wages played, um, the role of merchants, the role of state power, and so on. Anyway, so all of this is to say that a lot of the first part of the book is set up. So Notwithstanding that, there's a few points I thought were worth drawing out, and these are some of them are um, in the first chapter: Marx in Detroit and Smith in Beijing. And two of two points: one that Arigi takes um, the classical Marxist account of globalization, taken from the Communist Manifesto, with all the kind of the famous lyrical passages about the capitalist unification of the world. That he interprets Marx's account of globalization as economic convergence. Um, and so that anything, so to say that by way of saying that anything, according to him, that doesn't fit the model means that um, it's a departure from Marx's account of globalization. And I say that because I'm not sure it's a correct, it's that in fact that it is a correct interpretation or a correct account of Marx's understanding of globalization. It seems to me kind of an overly um, simplistic model. The other thing which I thought was extraordinary um both kind of uh, provocative, but also um, kind of fascinating, is the um, 
claim on page 24, where he quotes Samir Amin, another world systems kind of political economist, where he talks about whether the or what would preserve the potentially socialist or non-capitalist character of Chinese development is whether or how far there is the um, Chinese the Chinese people retain equal access to land and rights of equal access to land. And the point being that if you have the possibility of um, people having direct access to means of production um, in a way that they did not in the development of um, capitalism in Europe, then that means that what you're dealing with is not capitalism, perhaps, because according, at least in the classical conception of capitalism in the Marxist canon, you have to have um, wage laborers who have no recourse to um, survive without reliance on the market. So they don't have any access to means of production. And so a means point, at least as Rigi relays it, is that if there is still equal access to land, and if you can have the opportunity to gain access to the means of production, agricultural, in agricultural terms at least, then whatever you have happening in China is not necessarily capitalism per se. This is kind of... um, I raise it because I hope it'll be, you know, we'll see whether or not it's returned to in later later parts of the book. But I was kind of fascinated by it because it seems to me at once kind of um, at once kind of insightful and also um, completely kind of beside the point. Um, like when you, given everything that you you know that you read about China and understand about China, at least from the outside, in terms of the enormous kind of production of wealth there, the enormous kind of new disparities of wealth, um, the concentration of billionaires and millionaires, um, the emergence of kind of dynamic new firms and new sectors, all of this, as well as the enormous kind of population movement um, to the east coast and the cities from the countryside, it just seems to me like. Um, it seems like a trivial detail, and I'm not sure that uh, you would be able to stake such a grand claim about the development of Chinese society on a detail that seems to be overwhelmed by the um, sheer kind of dynamism of Chinese social change and development in the last 30 years. Well, anyway, something to um, something to think about, and um, I guess we'll come back to um, mm. the first. Uh, I suppose the first point that I wanted to um, discuss, and um, that I thought is worth discussing, isn't one that's original to Arigi, but it is one that recurs in all of these discussions. Um, and uh, well, which is to say, all these discussions of Chinese growth and expansion, and it's um, talking about. Chinese economic growth as a renaissance um, in this context, Origi calls it as a renaissance. So the basic idea being that the um, this is a return to China's kind of world historic position, um, the centrality of imperial China to um, to the world to world civilization. Um, prior to European ascendancy, um, means that with Chinese growth at the moment, with Chinese industrialization and all the enormous transformation that's happened there, what we're seeing is in fact a kind of um, a return to China's natural place in terms of its significance to humanity, in terms of its centrality to the human story, in terms of its just its place in 
global society, that that is what's happened. And so I wanted to begin by discussing that. What is at stake in how we frame um, Chinese kind of uh, industrialization and growth? Um, if we frame it as a renaissance, what are the consequences of that and the applications? And that, is it correct to frame it as such? I mean, it seems intuitive on one level, given China's... Um, you know, the illustrious kind of uh, backstory of Chinese uh, empires and the Chinese state and all of the rest of it. But um, is it actually accurate? Because it's not clear to me that it necessarily is. Yeah, I, it's, you use the uh, phrase human story. And I think that's probably the right way to think about this. Because let me put it this way, we talk a lot about endings, right? And um, we talk about the end of the end of history, right? The end of uh, globalization, um, US led kind of unipolarity, um, the uh, consensus post politics, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you've, you've been listening for a while, listener, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but it's also the end of the 20th century. In many ways, that's what we're living through. Um, the, the forms of the 20th century had already been hollowed out through the end of history period. So, for example, like alternation between center-left and center-right parties in government, um, elections, parties, etc. And now increasingly, we're seeing those forms themselves kind of fall away. And so, so much of what we take for granted about the 20th century seems to be falling away. This question here and about the rise of China seems to point to a much bigger ending, which is like the end of the West as the main stage on which human civilization happens or where like the main action is or where the action is led by um, however you want to characterize it and that seems to especially in the context of talking about a renaissance right so um, talking about China retaking its leading role um, not just within the capitalist epoch which we can say let's say from 1600 onwards um, but actually retaking its role kind of on a much larger time span so on the one level that seems much deeper and fundamental and important because it's like, wow, human, the human story now is not being told on the kind of Euro-Atlantic stage, but is being told primarily on the East Asian and, and specifically Chinese stage. Wow, that's big. But the flip side to that, I think, is to a certain extent to maybe take our, uh, draw attention away from capitalism as a specific type of system and civilization in itself. Because the other way to put this is to say, well, look, we can tell this whole human story about um, civilization being Mesoamerican and being Euro-Atlantic and being Chinese and being Indus Valley and being blah, 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 whatever. That's all very interesting and anthropological and whatever. But um, ultimately, what is politically important is the fact that we live in capitalist civilization. And this is a change within capitalism rather than beyond capitalism. Um, and I think that's kind of important. And I'm interested to see how Origi mediates that question, right? Because is he saying this is a change within capitalism or it's somehow a change almost beyond capitalism? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess I was quite kind of maybe skeptical of this this claim initially, this idea of the kind of the renaissance of, um, you know, return to the norm after this blip of European ascendancy. But this, of course, might just be like me being Eurocentric and kind of enjoying putting myself at the not quite the center of, of world history, but, you know, Britain was was mentioned as one of those um, kind of centers of systemic capital accumulation. And that's, you know, that's where I happen to to live. Um, yeah, I mean, but there, there are a few, you know, I think I was, he was convincing me to the extent that there is some empirical evidence um, as far as I can, you know, judge this. It seems like it is the, the case that in the, you know, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, you know, the share of world GDP, 
um, that was held in um, Japan and, and China um, was much higher than the US and the UK. And, you know, it, this is exactly the sort of thing that doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't really work on a on a podcast, but there is a graph where you can see the the kind of that um, level of world GDP from in, in China and Japan go down and then back up again. And you can see the share in, in the U, of the UK and the US go up and then so it starts low, goes up and then goes down again. So, I mean, to that extent, there does seem to be, you know, some some empirical validity to this. But I tend to, to, to probably kind of agree with Alex that the within the history of capitalism, it does seem like that, you know, that kind of starting point in in Europe or that that's the kind of the most recent chapter of the human story or however you want to put it, and that there is some historic there is some reason to be historically specific in terms of what the kind of at the grander scale what that kind of epoch that we think we live in is and that is a you know that is a, a western one um to start with it might not be forever but it has been thus far yeah i mean i'm i would i suppose i'd echo what's been said but add to it in this way i mean i think so it kind of um it kind of undercuts Arigi's own claim so framing human history in terms of um you know the uh which region is up you know which region of the world is up and which region of the world is down relative to each other over time undercuts the epochal significance of the rise of industrial modernity so you know i think that kind of it's kind of two claims tugging in different directions. He's talking about the transformation of the world economy through capitalism on the one hand, um, and on which is, you know, kind of something which is much larger than a single kind of region of the world. And at the same time wants to talk about the kind of um, a recentering of the world around East Asia. So, and I'm, I think those two things are ultimately, you know, it's kind of, ultimately contradictory and i think framing it in terms of a renaissance does undercut the sig- the significance of the fact that it's a it's the emergence of globalization itself you know so i mean i don't think the you know i think he's too perhaps uh, too credulous when it comes to kind of giving us these graphs that george mentioned about world gdp and it seems to me deeply anachronistic to talk about world gdp as a meaningful category say in the 1700s or something it's a very crude retrospective construct of a world that is barely global you know like it's not meaningfully kind of an integrated global economy um in a way that you can talk about it now and certainly prior to the rounding of the Cape and the, um, you know, the colonization of the Americas by Europe. Um, it's a world of uh, disconnected regions that you can't talk about meaningfully as a single kind of global unit, I don't think. Um, so I think it's kind of, without those kind of caveats, it's, uh, I think it's anachronistic. Um, yeah, I would just other- add something in, in there that like it, it it's it also kind of um, hides the role. You've got to give these guys their their props of the European bourgeoisie. Like he make, he makes what I thought was a really kind of interesting point that the European bourgeoisie's wealth and power came from foreign trade, um, not from agriculture. And it was only quite a lot later that it 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 kind of industrializes. So there is that that kind of um, I guess it's the the European bourgeoisie that makes the globe or like achieves that kind of you you can then talk about world gdp because prior to that 
you know you don't have that kind of unity unitary kind of system is not the right word but that like that a bit that kind of um integrated kind of um economy and i think you know there's there i don't think he needs this kind of renaissance point i think it's it seems like you can make a lot of the the claims that he makes anyway and, and some of the interesting analysis without necessarily having to kind of bring in that that deeper history um yeah yeah i mean uh, yeah it's I why think... it's why i suspect it's kind of uh, kind of an echo of his third world marxism it's uh, yeah. a way to kind of relativize it's a way to relativize european ascendancy i suppose um and a kind of a revenge, you know, kind of a historical revenge is the the return of um, uh, peoples who were subjugated at uh, kind of a new level of wealth and power, but a return to their historic role. Um, so, I mean, I want, oh. you know, it's important to raise, I think, because you don't want to hang too much on it. But at the same time, like, um, I'm going to bring you, I'll bring you in, Alex, I know you want to come in, but it's only to just this, I suppose, a closing thought on it, but it's the... Um, I suppose the framing is important because if it's a, you know, if it's a re, if you frame it as a renaissance, a return, then it suggests that um, that is more significant than the global, the qualitative transformation in human life that is inaugurated by industrial modernity um, and the economic growth associated with it. And so it's important, I suppose, to be clear about what the focus is. Is it a story of different regions ascending at different times, different civilizations ascending at different times? Or is it about the um, the break in human history that happens with the Industrial Revolution or Industrial Capitalism more specifically? So, um, well, I think that's Alex, right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Um, just to throw one other consideration into the, there, though, um, in trying to kind of juggle these two different stories that we have in our hands, right? One, a kind of trans-historical story about um, which country is like the leading country in the world um, over time, and one which is a more intra-capitalist story and really the story of capitalism and sorry, of capitalist development, wherever its um, leading engine might be. Um, what is interesting about the current period um, is that, and thinking particularly about the shift from the United States to China in, you know, about who's in the driver's seat of capitalism, is that this is the first time you have one of these shifts. Um, we've talked about, we just, Phil mentioned the other ones, you know, the shift from Venice to uh, Holland and Holland to England and then England to uh, the United States. Um, it was George, George, George. Oh, George did, yeah. Um, and it was and it was Genoa and, well, and the Low Countries. Okay, anyway, so let's not. the Belgians. And <laughs> um, the, the, the point being is that these shifts have always happened when at points in which there was still always an outside to capitalism. There was a an agrarian pre-capitalist um, outside there to be conquered, there to be colonized. And this is the first time that this shift happens when you already have total capitalism, both in a global sense and then, but also um, in a in a in a kind of vertical sense within societies that nearly all societies are kind of fully capitalist in 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 some way um and that maybe changes the nature of the of the shift from the united states to china and china entering the driver's seat i don't have an answer to that i don't even have a theory for why that is it's just something to throw in there and maybe useful to kind of return to yeah i mean there's also i guess just to i think your point phil about like is, is there some third worldism driving this that could could be the case and it maybe is part of the reason why smith is so important to this this book because 
and I, I didn't know this, but Smith had this kind of, you know, and this is to, to boil it down quite severely, but these kind of like natural and unnatural um, kind of paths of, of economic development with the natural path being kind of home based and then the unnatural being like foreign based trade. So there is like a, a way in which it's like, okay, so the European, like European bourgeoisie, you know, the, the way that they um, developed was, was sort of quote unquote unnatural. So there is a kind of, I don't know, might be reading too much into it, but just made me think of that, that like it is a sort of, um, it's almost a political or it's, it's moving towards a political judgment as to what is the, what are the different kind of modes of economic development you could have and what are the, what is the, the right, the quote unquote right one or the natural one um, to have. The other element of it is, I think, which is worth mentioning is also the, um, uh, at the start, so this is on page eight, Arigi talks about Adam Smith's conception of a world market society. Um, and he's kind of, um, he seems to me at least to kind of conflate that effectively with uh, multipolarity. Um, he doesn't use the phrase, at least in this first part of the book, multipolarity, but the idea of um, of a kind of a leveling out and an equalization of power and wealth between Europe or Europe and the Americas and the rest of the world is um, in Adam Smith's vision. This was kind of the development of a world market society, whereas what Arigi is talking about is the development of a kind of different or new poles and concentrations of power. Um, and it seems to me those are two different things and they should be kept separate because Adam Smith's vision is, um, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's a very different vision of a kind of a mercantile, um, an interdependent mercantile civilization. It's an old classic, um, the old classic kind of bourgeois utopia of soft commerce, du commerce, um, gradually kind of extending itself over the world and in doing so restraining uh, the tendency towards warfare and conflict um, and upheaval um, and integrating the world, kind of knitting it together. Um, so a world of, um, you know, a world of uh, tightly interwoven, intermeshed commercial civilization. And that's not, I don't think that's the same thing as a, um, as a return of the centrality of the Chinese state to world history or China as a region or um, an equalization of power and wealth that happens in the context of, um, you know, of kind of geopolitical rivalry. None of those things, they don't, you know, there might be kind of overlap at the margins of those ideas, but they're also very distinct. And I think, um, you know, he has a tendency to kind of run them together, at least in the introduction. And maybe it's a bit unfair to kind of hang so much uh, weight on these distinctions. But for the anyway, for the, for our benefit, and also obviously the benefit of our listeners, I wanted to lay them down, and hopefully we'll return to them in subsequent sessions. Um, so um, one thing which I was kind of fascinated by, because it's the first time that I've encountered it, I'm only vaguely um, familiar with... Um, uh, some of the some of the great kind of accounts of the or the accounts of the great divergence, Pomerantz's theory and Wong and so on, the thinkers that he talks about trying to account for um, uh, why Europe um, kind of breaks into industrial modernity first. But one thing that I was fascinated by was his account of um, East Asian success. This is Arigi taking another thinker, but he runs with it. Is this idea of East Asian success being based on a combination of industrious 
revolution with industrial revolution. So the idea being that Europe unlocks this um, self-sustaining dynamic of economic growth through the substitution of technology for labor. Um, and this breaks down and allows Europe to overtake um, the plateau or which had been reached by East Asian societies, particularly Japan and China, with the idea of an industrious revolution where they were able to um, through kind of uh, very highly articulated, um, a highly kind of articulated social division of labor and uh, productive kind of households in which each member of the household had a, um, had a uh, role to play. And you had um, tremendously kind of, um, you had this kind of high employment, very labor intensive model of growth that did succeed in boosting overall standards of living and overall um, uh, kind of distribution of wealth within those societies. So you had this kind of idea of a busy, a revolution which is based on labor intensive modes. And this becomes fused in the Cold War period. So you get kind of labor intensive industrialization in East Asia. And this is what allows... Um, uh, Taiwan allows Japan and eventually China as well. They take advantage of their kind of um, these extraordinarily kind of busy household units become plugged into global supply chains and um, through uh, labor intensive industrialization. This is what allows the East Asian miracle to occur. And I suppose I was struck by it and I um, wanted to flag it up because it's something which I think will recur later in the book. But it also seems to me kind of intuitively accurate in terms of uh, an account of um, of those societies, stretching from you know at least as far as I'm familiar with them, stretching from the northeast Asia, northeast Asia to southeast Asia. Yeah, I'm a bit. I don't know. Experience the... of China, George, so you can tell us. Um, you know, feel free to throw in kind of anything which fits with uh, your kind of. Um, time there that you think might help cast light on some of these points or jars with them or not as the case may be um well i was going to make a, a point which has uh, nothing to do with my personal experience but was about the about like 17th century dutch calvinists like i just don't like this idea of the industrious like maybe i just don't i just don't like the term industrious revolution because weren't like the calvinists very industrious wasn't there like, wasn't that industriousness, like, the whole point of, like, the Protestant ethic, like, that you, that through industriousness, you show your, <clears throat> your part of the elect. And I know it's used very differently here, because it's not about the, um, the, the kind of individual orientations, but about the family or the household, in particular, being that kind of center of labor. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm just responding to the, to the terminology It's trying to be too cute. And I, I don't, I don't kind of, I don't like I it think, for that reason. Isn't the Protestant though, the Calvinist, you know, that's merchants, you know, so it's the Calvinist kind of ethic is associated, particularly in the low countries, it's associated with, yeah, with a kind of mercantile outlook. Whereas I think the point being made here is the, the stability and organization and coherence of the Confucian household, you know, talking in kind of rough, kind of broad brushstrokes, mm. is the basis of a different kind of um, a different kind of uh, subjective orientation to economic growth and improvement. Without talking about, you know, without talking about the um, religious and kind of sociological dimensions of it. Anyway, I wanted so, to lay it down. I mean, so yeah. so you're saying that that those Dutch Calvinists didn't like their families, that they hate, that they didn't. 
do their their workings for their families. No, I think it is like there is a like I the bit that intuitively kind of clicked with me or that I did find quite useful was like the distinction with the kind of class-based industrial production of of Britain. So this is one of the things that Arigi talks about, somebody else, another um, economic theorist, Sugihawa, who uses this this term of industrious revolution, which was originally applied to Europe and was specifically with reference to China. And I thought, yeah, there must, there, there could quite possibly be something about the different processes of class formation and this is how you know this there is a there is a distinction here um but but i wasn't yeah maybe again maybe it's just that i don't like the the, the term um but there is there is something in the in the concept so if it was rebranded i would i would be able to get on board with it more i just want to make one one little point i think about economic development which appears here in origi um and i think in reference also to to east asia which is the role of high wages um, and the way that I mean, and maybe we can kind of come back to this as we go through the book later on in the in like next episodes. Um, but the role of high high wages um, in in fostering economic development, something that runs counter entirely to um, a lot of kind of mainstream economic prescriptions today. Um, and it's something which is a point made by the the economic historian Robert C. Allen, um, who um, in his history of of global development points out that it was often, you know, there's high wages, pre-existing high wages, for whatever reason, if there was, you know, population shortages, for example, which pushed up wages, that that spurred on capitalists to develop technology. Um, and to a certain extent, this that there's hints of, of that idea, um, I think, even in, in talking about East Asia's growth. Um, so it's maybe something to, to kind of bear in mind as well, um, just because particularly because it runs, it's count, runs counter to, to a lot of contemporary prescriptions. So this takes us to um, the next theme I wanted to talk about was his um, focus on the project for the new American century. Um, and those of you who might not remember it, um, among our younger listeners, this was the um, kind of global strategic vision associated with the neoconservatives who were influential on the Bush administration during the second Bush administration at the height of the war on terror and specifically around the invasion of Iraq. So, I mean, there were many kind of points on it, but the um, some of the core themes of the project for the New American Century were to um, prevent the arrival of any, sorry, prevent the emergence of any systemic rival to U.S. power, whether that be in Russia or in China, um, to maintain the U.S. role as the indispensable nation at the core of international trading alliances, political structures, international organizations, and so on, and also to um, be the core of the global economy, the engine and center of the global economy and its political leader, and to democratize the Middle East by way of um, ending authoritarianism and dictatorship. So a kind of an extension of the American victory in the Cold War against any kind of lingering holdouts. And there was a lot, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners will remember, there was a lot written about the project for a new American century. So I was struck to be reminded of it here particularly because it seems so remote. But this was really the US of the zenith of its kind of unipolar power. And the um, this was before the Iraq, the surge, um, 
of troops, so-called, in Iraq, because that came um, a bit later than the publication of this book. Um, but it was kind of this project for a new American century was, I mean, looking back, I think even at the time, I mean, there were people who said, like, you know, it's kind of um, taking the most um, conceited um, political rhetoric of um, some of the thinkers and some of the wacky thinkers associated with the Bush administration and taking it kind of as uh, as good coin, kind of taking it on its own terms and assuming that it could be meaningfully translated into a material American power. And so looking back on it, I mean, I think it's, um, I think I'm, you know, the not everyone was swayed by the hyperbole of the PNAC as Rigi seems to be. Um, at the time. And he says some odd things. He says, like, it was the effort, this is on page seven, the effort for the first time to create a truly global empire. Um, and this is with respect to, you know, the invasion of Iraq, essentially, you know, which was, you know, at this point and still is kind of uh, not having recovered from the American invasion, but, you know, a beleaguered, small Middle Eastern country. So I don't know how the conquest of Iraq and the installation of a new government amount to this idea of, uh, you know, this kind of uh, world historic creation of some new global empire. So I think there's a lot of inflation, overinflation of um, American power at that point. Um, and I suppose I wanted to to ask you guys what you made of it, looking back about Arigi's, maybe, I mean, maybe you disagree, but it seems to me his overestimation of the neocons is really something. And why, why is it important? I mean, I, we should not read history backwards or, or write history already knowing the end point. So we know that that failed. And but I think it would be wrong to immediately conclude, well, it was always going to fail, right? The Bush's plan for the Middle East was always going to fail, um, or that it would never have or that it was merely um, a kind of flight of fancy of the Republican Party uh, taken over by neocons, and that the alternation of power within the US would have kind of evened things out and, and kind of pulled pulled the US back a little bit back from the Middle East or something like that. Um, you know, I, I I think the, the I think the Varigi, it's interesting reading it, obviously, this being written before uh, Iraq ends up a total fiasco and before the global financial crisis, um, which is centered um, on, on, on the United States. Um, so obviously, how do you read this? Like you go, well, he didn't know that shit was about to hit the fan, you know, in, in for American power in, in two kind of very significant ways. Um, albeit, you know, with, with consequences that operate on different time spans. So like Iraq was pretty immediate. Um, whereas mm. a global financial crisis, um, plays itself out in, in various different ways over a longer period. The, the kind of level of indebtedness of the U S for example, is something that is still playing itself out. Um, but like, so is he is he completely is he completely wrong and over in buying the hype and it's right before the thing crashes? I think it's still worth exploring whether if this had if the idea that this was a very serious plan for um a kind of yeah global domination of a way unseen before, maybe other than maybe under the British Empire something similar was achieved and that this would have been institutionalized within American politics had it succeeded, right? And I think we can probably um, we can probably agree on that. I think you know that it's like it's not like the Democrats mm. would have come in and undone that if 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 it had worked. Um, and but anyway, I don't. I, I, so I don't have an answer. But it obviously is very central to Rigi's concerns, um, which is 
um, and we'll come on to this, I think, in, in a second. Um, but the Arigi's concerns are political. Um, he's interested in kind of connecting up militarism and political power and coercion together with the other themes of capitalism and industrialism, which like Marx and um, Schumpeter talks about. Um, so I think it's it's very it's, it's very relevant, obviously, that he's focused on, on that because it's like, okay, how does um, military power interlink with economic power and how does one further the other or even lead to the development mm-hmm. of the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take that point about not writing history backwards but it i guess what you what you can expect is a kind of an analysis which explains why the pnac was always was always fucked basically and I, i'm not sure i completely agree with your reading here phil of Arigi, because he does you know he does say that we're already starting you know this systemic cycle of um of capital accumulation of with the us at, the, at its center it's already you know, it's already in decline. Like the, you have these, you know, the the Vietnam War is its signal crisis, and then the Iraq War is terminal crisis. And you know, there's it's already showing. Like, you know, that's why the book is about the rise of China. And and I guess the, you know, and he, he comes onto this in the, the third part of of the book, like how the how the the rise of China and the the, the decline or downfall of the US are, are linked. I think is is obviously crucial. Um. But yeah, I mean, the, the right at the start of the book, I was, you know, the first sort of um, thing that after the introduction that, that Arigi notes is that like no, loads of people didn't see China's rise coming. So like, you know, all these um, economists who kind of didn't, didn't, including Paul Krugman, like they didn't see, like they didn't see this coming. And so, you know, that's what he's trying to get at is why is it that people didn't see the kind of the, the rise of China coming? Why didn't they see the decline of America coming? And I think if I wanted to give all the, the note that I wrote down and, you know, I'm prepared to be to be wrong on this, is that it seems like economic theory consistently undervalues production. And, you know, that, that you know, this might be a vulgar Marxist reading to a certain extent, but like if you bet on the country that produces all the things to be the power, then, you know, you, you, you're in a you're starting off with not a terrible kind of likelihood of, of being correct. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure that he does think that the, the, the project for a new American century is actually like, is actually going to work because it doesn't have the, the economic foundation. Yeah, I suppose um, it's not that, I mean, he says on the facing page, you know, that China is the winner of the Iraq war. And I mean, that was already kind of the smart money was already going there in yeah. 2007. So I mean, I think, you know, I suppose what I'm, I suppose I still, I still get the sense that he just takes at face value, um, you know, kind of think tank bloviating, essentially. I just don't think that perhaps it was as serious kind of a project as, um, as he, um, as he thinks it was at the time. But also the other element of it, I think, which I would do want to, you know, and I would, and I would hold this line more, um, more confidently is it also underestimates the character of American power in this period because um, you know the left was as committed to American power as well through the vision of human rights um, and so there's a way in which kind of focusing on the neocons vision of uh, the project for a new American century is oblivious to the much kind of wider scope 
of American power in this period that was understood and the, you know, the purest kind of at least the political vision of that uh, unipolarity and that uh, global vision of American economic strength and power was human rights much more than the project for a new American century. And it still is, I think, to some degree. So I think he kind of, um, he had once kind of overstates the PNAC and at the same time understates the um, the real kind of uh, ideological carapace, if you want to use that kind of language, of um, American yeah, power mean, at the time, which the left the was time, committed to. Yeah, now might be the time for me to to confess that I, I, the term PNAC didn't ring a bell for me when I read this. So, like, maybe that's... What were you doing you know, in 2007? Who knows? I mean, but maybe, had you but heard, like, did you did you hear about the invasion of Iraq at the time? Maybe yeah, but I didn't hear about it. Not paying branded attention. In, didn't hear about it branded in this in these terms. So maybe, yeah, maybe he did. He he. I mean, the, what is the content of the New American Century? I mean, was was it human rights? I mean, if that is, if you, I think full you were, spectrum you're, dominance. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, so, so that was the term. Yeah, maybe it is. Then just he mistook the wrapper for the product inside the wrapper or whatever but well yeah. the um you know it was a bush pro i mean it was associated with a bush project and you know there were plenty of people who were thinking of the bush administration at the time the way that people think about the trump administration now as this kind of um rampaging unilateralist you know fascistic if not outrightly fascist um uh unelected um, authoritarian government that was tearing up international law, tearing up international treaties, um, highly militaristic, um, you know, crushing human rights. And so in that kind of, um, in that kind of response to the Bush administration, there was overlooked the fact of how much of American power at the time was built on Clintonite ideals you know, on the pre-Bushite era, on Clintonite ideals of um, liberal internationalism, of uh, multinational integration, transnational integration, and human rights and yeah. humanitarian intervention as part of that. So anyway, it's only to say, I think, that the um, the true scope of American power is kind of uh, much greater than, uh, than he lets on. And it's important in as much as the commitment to American power was not just a right-wing thing. So moving on, in any case, I wanted to also talk about something which I found fascinating. So one of the things that I like most about this book is, I suppose, how much it cuts against so much existing scholarship in academia, at least. Um, much more kind of pernickety and small scale and um, kind of these ever so thinly sliced kind of points for produced in um, academic articles. And what is so um, I suppose, uh, stimulating about Arigi's book is taking these kind of grand models of social theory, of economic development, of growth, of capitalist development, embodied in figures like Marx, Schumpeter and Adam Smith, and seeing how far they can fit onto this tremendous kind of ongoing transformation in, in world history, which is Chinese industrialization. And so what I was fascinated was when he brings up in this is um, on pages forty-seven, um, so this is uh, deep into the second chapter on the historical sociology of Adam Smith, where he discusses the different 
uh, or the differential political capacities of different classes. And this is Arigi kind of relaying Smith's thoughts on the matter. And so specifically what he talks about is the lassitude of landowners. So that landowners, this is um, Adam Smith's quote, too often not only ignorant, but incapable of that application of mind which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequences of any public regulation. So the fact that they live off rent essentially means that they have no, um, they're not kind of involved in any um, actual kind of process of overseeing or maintaining or intervening in the actual kind of process of production. They simply skim off the top, means that they're intrinsically um, indifferent to the kinds of uh, decisions and questions and policies that matter to the nation. And then he says, for the wage earner, this is Smith again, he is incapable either of comprehending the general social interest or of understanding its connection with his own. His voice is little heard and less regarded, except on some particular occasions when his clamour is animated, set on and supported by his employers, not for his, but for their own particular purposes. So he has a very um, pessimistic view of the capacity of the workers to achieve any kind of um, uh collective vision of their own interest, let alone actually kind of shape an intervention into society. And then on the other hand, you have profit earners. And according to Smith, again, this is Smith's words, and this is all on page 47, by their wealth draw to themselves the greatest share of public consideration. Because during their whole lives, they're engaged in plans and projects, they have a better knowledge of the interest than he who lives by rent has of his. And they are most able to organize themselves in such a way that they can effectively subvert um, the national interest, the collective interest, um, the general will, if you wanted to use um, a term from outside Adam Smith. Anyway, I was fascinated by this and I wondered how far it's still stacked up um, well, and how far you could use it as a kind of a general model for um, understanding the dynamics of class over time. Well, I mean, I can't even, I can't answer that because I think he, because I, I read Arigi saying something uh, contrary, the opposite um, to the way you laid out. Um, because on page 47, he says, the interests of the first two orders, that is uh, wage owners and rentiers, uh, tend to coincide with the general social interest because the real value of both rents and wages tend to rise with the economic expansion and fall with the economic decline of society. Um, so they do well. Uh, workers do well when society is doing well and workers do badly when society is doing badly and, and likewise for rentiers. The interests of profit earners, in contrast, may clash with the general social interest because they always involve a widening of the market and a narrowing of the competition. So basically, yeah, that's what I said. So, so, rentier, so it is profit earners who do, uh, that is to say capitalists, whose interests do not coincide with the general social interest. And they don't coincide with the general social interest be, in that's part. That's what because, I said. Did you? I misheard you. Any in any case, well, um, I had I had understood you saying as you know the um, like landowners didn't have an interest, didn't have their interests coincide with wider societies, and so and wage earners also. No, no, no. they don't have a political capacity to intervene. Right, they're not right. kind of yeah. predisposed yeah. to um, articulate and collectively defend their interests by the nature of their economic location. And he's talking about profit owners, right? I mean, this is a mercantile vision of e economic activity. He's not talking about capitalists the way that we would understand kind of um, laying down, you know, investment for plant and machinery. Yeah. Okay. So there's two, so there's two different questions. One is the kind of the capacity for kind of leadership. And the other is the question of 
whether their interests coincide, you know, with with wider society. And I think so. The the point that I wanted to draw attention to is is the fact that you know profit, uh, the owners of of profit, effectively capitalists for the for the sake of argument, are um, their interests don't coincide with with uh, with society. I mean, Phil, you're shaking your head, but he he's talking about he contrasts rentiers, landowners, with those who are uh, the earners of profit. Um, I think so, it's confusing matters to call them capitalists when Anarigi is careful to say profit earners. So people who live off profit is, you know, people who, um, you know, might just kind of be um, buying cheap and selling dear um, in Adam Smith's schema. So it's not kind of capitalism. Okay. okay you know, but I mean, they, right, it's so, anachronistic, I think, to call okay, them capitalists. Fair enough. Fair enough. But in, in, in any case, the, the point is that they benefit from monopoly, which is to the detriment of wider society. Um, and it's interesting because this is comes connected to an argument that Arigi makes quite a, a bit earlier on in the book, perhaps in the introduction or the first chapter, which is a kind of a general point, which is worth highlighting, which is that um, growth and development don't coincide necessarily. So the growth in the sum of profits, which might lead to GDP growth, do not lead to development. Or um, alternatively, to put it in kind of a slightly different way, that you might have um, the kind of leading sections of society um, in a situation which is rather comfortable for them, um, and they do well, but it doesn't mean that um, you actually have a, a, like a genuine economic expansion or, or kind of a wider development. Um, and this kind of runs contrary to um, both, I think, in, in contemporary terms, the defenders of capitalism who say, well, growth leads to development and, you know, higher profit rates are just good for everyone. But it also, I think, runs contrary to um, maybe kind of left or green left critics who will dismiss growth in, to in, in total because it's, they um, are kind of not interested in they see kind of growth and development. Yeah, that's all that's all bad and not realizing the fact that often and, you know, in contemporary times, we often have growth. You have paper growth, but you don't actually have, have um, development. They don't often necessarily run together. Okay, so, but I mean, getting a bit off the point, because what I was interested in was Smith's account of the political capacities of classes. So not so much whether or not their interests coincide with the general social interests. Like you say, Alex, he shows that um, landowners and wage earners' interests amount to the social interests. Profit earners' interests could frequently cut against it. Um, particularly because they have a strong incentive to create monopoly. So um, the question is like Smith's, you know, like I'm saying, so if we're setting up grand models of social theory, Adam Smith, I think, deserves to, you know, kind of have his model um, uh, used, applied. Um, and so how far, you know, how how compelling an account of the political capacities of the three different, the main three different classes in Smith's view, in Smith's schema, how compelling an account of their political capacities is it? Yeah, I, mean, I think it is a very good question. Um, I think not very compelling or but more, more like more interestingly, I think Arigi is, Arigi is really good on this. He like, I guess I probably hadn't really understood this fully, but he explains how like Smith's like who who is Smith speaking to? Basically, he's speaking speaking to legislators. He's speaking to governments, and then he a little while later he's like, well, but Marx and and I guess that's my kind of implicit model that I'd compare it to. That kind of you have one capital, many labors. Labor needs to do the work of organizing before it can act politically, which I think is you know obviously something which I would I would uh, agree with. Um, but Smith's you know, and this explains why Smith's um actual advice to governments is quite labor friendly because he's like well 
you know the workers can't can't do anything they can't like you know wait those those uh, those dumb wage earners basically so in fact you need to have labor friendly um uh policies and in fact what the government needs to do with respect to to capitalists as as Zarigi puts it a fundamental task of governments is to ensure that capitalists compete with each other in reducing profits to the bare minimum necessary to compensate for the risk of investing resources in trade and production so you actually need i think or more like the differential ability of these groups to act politically this is it what explains why Smith takes the view that he does in terms of advising governments to make sure capitalists do their competing and make sure that, you know, policies favor wage earners who can't act politically. They can't because of the structure of their interests and their inability to, I guess, um, socially organize. Alex? You don't care about whether people can socially organize? Uh, I just don't think that this is like relevant because, because as you say, they're not even capitalists. So I don't think it's, um, I don't know. I don't think it, it's like it's old shit. doesn't not really relevant. I, I think it's trying to wedge it into isn't, kind of contemporary. Isn't that old that, history? That? It's, old, it's old, old shit. shit. Yeah. Adam Smith, it's old shit listeners. So there you have it. Put that on your fucking uh, purple t-shirt. Um, <laughs> but it's pre-industrial is the point, which is the point that you made you made to me actually in, in, in trying to emphasize that these profit earners are not capitalists. Um, so I think it... I'm I did, sure. yeah. I suppose, I mean, I wonder, I suppose the implicit question, maybe I should have been more explicit, but I suppose one of the implicit questions is, you know, is Smith's account of wage earners true prior to the Industrial Revolution? You know, and if it is, then what is it about industry um, is it just the kind of the different kind of uh, mode of uh, labor um, that transforms the kind of capacity of um, wage earners to organize themselves? Um, so it's those kinds of questions, well, which I suppose I was getting at. That, you know, Smith's not a sociologist. Marx was a sociologist as well as political economist and philosopher and blah, well, blah, Arigi, blah. Arigi like, says he is a sociologist. I mean, he was yeah, a he philosopher does. and he was a sociologist. I, so. don't quite, I don't quite buy that because this is not, in my opinion, all that sophisticated a sociological kind of um approach but you know there is definitely something to go back to that point about you know british um industrial production compared to kind of that that family-centric model it's different you know that is going to lead to different mechanisms of class formation if you have all these potatoes in a sack i.e workers in a factory and all the potatoes slash workers are kind of talking to each other and blah 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 that is a different that is a different that is going to lead to a different sort of potential for class formation and political action so it's I mean, removed from the private sphere um the potatoes yeah. in the sack would be like the industrious um revolution more than the industrial revolution but i mean i thought it was intriguing and as particularly i like the idea of landowner you know this idea that landowners the very nature of their um the very nature of uh their kind of uh role in society means that they're simply too lazy to do anything at all so it made me think yeah, i he, suppose about how far it can be generalized to rent people who are um dependent on rent in general he might have been looking at the english like landowners of, of his sure time was, and, yeah. and um and making not unfair generalizations from their um yeah indolence. or maybe the I, maybe yeah. the um the highland you know the highlanders as well as a lowland scott maybe he was looking at the highlanders and thinking how lazy and indolent they were. Anyway, I mean, I thought it was interesting. Um, perhaps we can move on. Um, 
which is a broader question about Adam Smith. Um, and again, it's kind of a, what is a, what's at stake question, which is this revisionist view of Adam Smith. We've already touched upon that Arigi develops over the course of the um, over the course of these chapters, which is you know kind of. Uh, He's not the kind of the patron saint of the free market or um, the kind of the guy who, even though his kind of image is embossed on the front of all of these um, neoliberal think tanks in DC and London, he, you know, his kind of social theory, his political economy just doesn't correspond to that at all. Quite the opposite. As George mentioned, it's kind of focused, it's directly addressed to legislators. It's focused on the idea of... um, a core kind of uh, governmental authority, a state being uh, sufficiently strong to kind of uh, rectify for the effects of um, profit earners on the kind of general social interest, all of this. Um, So it's a very, this kind of, and it's not, he's again, he's not the only one to kind of make this revisionist take, but I'm, I suppose I'm interested in um, why is it important? Is it important at all? You know, it's kind of a familiar story in some ways. Is it important to make the case, to make a revisionist case for Adam Smith? I mean, it, it makes me angry reading it. I mean, I studied this at, like in undergrad and, and so have read some of the things that he references, um, Robert Heilbronner and uh, Winch, I think his name is, all these guys anyway, who who kind of scholars of Adam Smith. And I, you know, I remember learning, learning at the time and then, you know, you think like, think of the think tanks. It's like, it should have been called the I Have Never Read Adam Smith Institute. Um <laughs> Like, because it was, it was, yeah, but it was painfully obvious to me, even reading kind of primary sources when I was 21, uh, that like this had nothing to do with the image of Adam Smith as kind of this buccaneering free trader. And, you know, the dis- the political distance between Adam Smith and the Washington consensus is or maybe even greater than between, let's say, Marx and Hayek. Like, I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it is huge. Um, we can obviously quibble about exactly how how you'd how you calculate that political distance, but you know he's effectively a a social democrat who is con- and because of and I mean that in a kind of pretty thoroughgoing sense in terms of accepting the a society of classes broadly, um, but whose concerns are primarily political and social rather than directly economic, um, and uh, and ultimately it doesn't really matter. I mean, so, you know, you can get angry about it and go, well, this is just a travesty and they've misused, uh, they've misused Adam Smith's name um, for the pursuit of um, their interests and have undertaken, you know, radical transformations of society to the detriment of the majority and done in Adam Smith's name. What an outrage, but does it matter? I mean, if you had won that battle and they would have been unable, you know, if the neoliberals had been unable to use Adam Smith's good name to advance their policies, would they have been less successful? Probably not. So I think the stakes in this ultimately are pretty low, even as much as we might hate it for reasons of, you know, historical accuracy and intellectual um, honor and credibility. Yeah, I think, I think that that probably is, is, is right. Isn't it? That, you know, the more that you place Adam Smith in in his historical context and think about like within, you know, the Enlightenment and what was political economy, it is a it is a kind of, I guess, a, a tool of a tool of governance or like in the classical political economy, it is it is an analysis of society which is which is trying to give um, a way that you know the the state can act politically in order to um you know to govern society and to 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 govern the economy and that's never going to be this kind of extreme libertarian um kind of model uh, unless there is an enlightenment 
kind of political economist thinker who I'm who I'm not thinking of at the moment who is who is in this kind of more atomized um, model. But yeah, I mean, you know, if <laughs> it's making me think of the the um, the proverb like if you've if you've uh, if you argue with a fool and you've and you and you best them, well, you know what what have you achieved? Like if you do argue with an Adam Smith Institute person that Adam Smith was pro state, and they you know what have what have you achieved in that in that kind of context? Um, but it, you know there must be more to it though, because Smith was has been not just to the kind of ideologues, but has been so massively influential that there must be there must be something at stake in his intellectual legacy. But maybe I'm just not not quite seeing I think it. that must yeah I think I mean I, th- I I think that must be right um his intellectual legacy is um you know p- probably the premier kind of philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment um maybe and certainly one of the premier figures in the Enlightenment as as a whole um I think I mean I I suppose what's interesting in it is that the if he's understood as the patron saint of free market capitalism it effaces the industrial revolution. I mean, I suppose that's the interesting part of it. So what is the specific dynamics introduced by industrial capitalism, as opposed to um, this kind of uh, pre-revolutionary or just on the cusp of the revolutionary era of um, the peaceful kind of extension and growth of this mercantile civilization of a world market society, as I said was said before, that that is kind of the... Um, you know the Smithian utopia, and that's very different from a world of, um, of uh, I suppose, uh, oligarchy um, and kind of stupendous kind of concentration of wealth, or indeed, you know, kind of uh, the hamster wheel of um, technological progress that doesn't seem, you know, that um, is kind of market driven, but not necessarily um, especially uh, useful um, for uh, driving economic growth or improving living standards. Um, so anyway, I mean, I think that's probably what's at stake is yeah. how we understand the dynamics and the implications and consequences of the Industrial Revolution because he's talking about a his understanding is of a different era. And if you understand, if you think that we're in the same era where it is possible to have a world market society and where, you know, profit earning is, um, you know, kind of buying cheap and selling deer is basically all there is to making money, um, you know, then that's a very different account of the world um, compared to one that understands um, that there is more to industrial production than buying cheap and selling deer, and that understands that the kind of the torsion of industrialization introduces dynamics that make the liberal kind of utopia of a world market society out of reach and mean that it can't actually be um, accessed or realized. Um, I have so, a question. Anyway. Would, you, would you deal on Adam Smith? I mean, you know, if that is the Would I deal on him, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, you know, you basically you're offered a, a, a Smithian a Smithian society now, right? One of the sort of liberty of of small producers being able to trade in the market. Yes, you have competition, which is kind of oppressive, but basically you have a kind of a fair amount of liberty. Um, oh, it in sounds that. wonderful. Do, do, yeah. Do you deal on that? You deal on that. You, you give up. You sounds... give up communist. You give up the communist horizon for for you deal on Smith. No, I mean it's. I think it's a one. You know, it's a wonderful vision for a world that hasn't encountered industrial revolution. No, um, sure. I'm. I'm asking something that's completely hypothetical and and, and counterfactual. Whatever. But no, but, but it's, no, but it is. But I think it is right. I mean, I think it should be seen as 
um, as a genuine kind of uh, a genuine insight into into what human civilization was capable of in its um, in a way that developed kind of prosperity as well as liberty. And that that becomes that Smithian vision becomes impossible to reconcile with the Industrial Revolution and what the dynamics that are introduced by it. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, if you know, if we were in that world, I would take it, sure. And he takes, I mean, he's very clear about the, um, you know, the kind of the when, it's particularly when he talks about colonization and the benefits of colonization for ordinary people, um, and the importance of wage growth and, like you say, kind of competition is in the interests of the consumer, in the interests of the wage earner. All of these things, all of that seems to me to sound fantastic, as well as his concern for liberty. I mean, why wouldn't you, George? You dealing on Smith? Yeah, I'll shake your hand on Smith right now. Um, how will I be receiving my Smithian world? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the, the the premise of this is that it's impossible because you have industrialization, you have monopoly capitalism, you have all this other stuff, oh, you, which makes that vision of, of enlightenment vision of freedom, um, you know, of 1776 when the Wealth of Nations came out, unfortunately impossible. Um, but anyway, we're... Yeah. I suppose, but the mistake would be a real mistake to think you're going to get kind of, uh, you know, um, so a global civil society. I mean, you think about it, the difference, right? So what Smith is talking about global civil society, he's talking about kind of um, poor people um, going, you know, kind of braving the Atlantic to set up in small towns on the North American coast in order to kind of find their own homestead, set up their own little shops and kind of improve their lives in ways that wouldn't be possible in still uh, Europe that was still so feudal, right? Um, that And he's talking about those trade links and the expansion of these trading networks and so on compared to global civil society today when you're talking about like, um, you know, kind of a blue-haired MA student sitting, you know, kind of taking their state-funded NGO to the UN to get funding for, you know, kind of, I don't know, keeping their NGO on the road or whatever. Um, so it's a very different vision, right? Global civil would, kind of global civil would, society. I think it would be today. more legit if if uh, if those like someone working for like an international NGO, they were all given weapons, given arms, um, and <laughs> held. Well, because then you're holding the state to account. You know, the state is it doesn't dominate society, but is uh, so you know that's if you want to make so, global civil society real, you need everybody needs to have guns. Isn't that Al Qaeda for everyone? Isn't that Al Qaeda or mm. um, Boko Haram? It's basically an NGO with guns. That's true, but um, you know, like better than, but I, you know, I'd still prefer kind of woke liberalism to to Islamism, you know. Yeah, no, sure, me too. But my point is only like, um, you know, it would be a mistake to think you could get the Smithian world um, through what passes for global civil society now. No, sure, which no. is um, you know, kind of. Uh, Kind of just loads of, I mean, essentially just loads of um, sock puppets well, yeah. for uh, states of different kinds. You've got a world of nuclear weapons and multinational corporations and all the rest. It's, yeah, it's a very different world. But I suppose what I'm getting, I suppose what I'm getting at is like there are people who delude themselves into thinking that the kind of um, Adam Smith's liberal world can be recreated, right? Yeah. You know, and that is what I'm that is what I'm disputing. Um, anyway, <laughs> I think I mean we can leave it there for the first um, for the first part. I thought that was, I mean, I found that a useful discussion. So thanks to you guys. Thanks to our listeners and hopefully listeners enjoyed it. Um, and by all means, send in your questions 
comments and ideas on what we've been talking about and what you would like us to talk about further down the road with with Arigi. So what's coming up next? What's the next reading? Well, it's, it's, we're done so with the, the setup, right? Is, we're done. This was this yeah, was yeah. So part two, I mean, will be the next reading. So it's um, tracking global turbulence. Sounds sexy. Um, I'll be honest. Yeah. So and who this doesn't is like more, to track turbulence? It's one of I think my this is more, favorite um, things this, to track. This is more of uh, up Alex's street, I think. So you'll find the breakdown is on the Patreon. Um, and uh, yeah. All right. Uh, reading Club people specifically, though you're part of the general population as well. Uh, we'll see you next month for the next Reading Club. But we'll see you very, very soon for the next episode. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.